Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here this morning. I come to you from Texas, a town called College, yeah, town called College Station, Texas, home of the Aggies. There's always one crazy in the crowd with me, and then the rest of us, the rest of you in the room question me and question your church leadership for allowing an Aggie to stand on your stage. I get all of that. So we'll just get that out of the way. So one of my favorite ways and best ways to introduce myself to you is I'm going to show you a picture of the very, very female world that I live in. And so there they all are. It explains the hair loss and the graying beard, but that's my little buddy Jordan there. So he and I uh, are, are the two guys in a sea of ladies. And let me explain a little bit. So uh, Jordan, who I'm holding, we met when he was one week old and he belongs to Guiana, who we met when she was 17. She is now 21. Uh, Jordan is now four, four and a half. Little baby Brooklyn in there has come along uh, and she belongs to Guiana. And there's another little baby in the mix. It's not in this picture, baby London, who also belongs to Guiana because in the foster care world, if you're involved in it at all, you understand, you take a family picture and then uh, like the next day it's out of dates because families change and it's dynamic and it's fluid. And so this is our most recent out of date family picture. Uh, And then that's uh, the glue, the rock that holds it all together there in the back, Emily, my wife. Uh, And here's basically how our marriage and foster care works. She says, I've become aware of a situation and that's it right? That's the equivalent of us having prayed about it for a long time and talked about it for a long time. My job is to just figure out a way to make it happen. And so that's how we work. And uh, that's how we met Guiana. She became aware of a situation and then they moved in. It was like, it was basically, that's how it worked. Uh, And they're holding Brooklyn as Presley. Uh, She's now uh, 14. 14. Darby in the blue Texas shirt is now 12. Macy, who is our oldest biological, just turned 16. And then there in the front is Marley. We met Marley when she was three days old. She came to us through the foster care system in Houston. And uh, unfortunately, she was never able to go home. And that might sound strange to you if you're not familiar with foster care. Uh, So let me explain. I say unfortunately because it is unbelievably unfortunate that this has to be a part of her story. And it's unbelievably unfortunate that her family was not able to get healthy uh, and, and be in a position where they could welcome her back in. And yet it's also mixed with this beautiful tension of we love the fact that she's in our family and that we get to be her mommy and daddy and they get to be her sisters. And so it's this mixed, mixed tension of beauty and brokenness uh, involved in this foster care space. And we'll share a little bit more if we have time towards the end of our journey there. Uh, Our purpose here this morning is we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to disciple our kids and for us to have a home and a rhythm uh, in which uh, we all collectively, mom and dad, kiddos, and anybody else that walks in uh, on some level and in some capacity gets a little bit closer to Jesus because of our home. And that's going to look different and it's going to look diverse and it's going to look unique. And so we're going to walk through a series of ideas and, and, and questions to ask ourselves uh, that might feel a little bit unique. If you've gone to a parenting conference or gone through a parenting workshop, uh, uh, this might feel a little bit different and that's on purpose. I want it to feel different because I want it to feel uh, a little different, uh, different enough that we, uh, that we pay attention to some of the ideas and then we look at how they incorporate into our own unique circumstances and our own unique context. I'll never forget when Macy, who's 16 now, was probably a year and a half old, and she was the only kiddo in the family at the time, and we're driving in the car, and she's in the back seat, and parents, you've probably had something similar to this happen in, in your environment, uh, maybe some to uh, more extremes than others, but uh, it was the first time that she used words that she had gotten from us, and here's how it worked. We're driving, I'm driving, my wife's in the passenger seat, and uh, somebody cuts me off, or something's going on, and she can just tell, she senses something's, something's not right, and so she screams 
screams from the back seats, move it, people, right? And I go, what does she say? And she screams it again, move it, people. And I look at my wife, I'm like, somebody screams, move it, people, in the car when she's driving, because I don't say that, right? And we're dying laughing, and it's that moment where you realize they're listening. Like, uh uh-oh, this isn't, what else have they heard, right? (laughs) They're watching, they're listening, they're absorbing that that who we are and what we say and what we do and how we live is is informing them and becoming a part of them and it's it's developing them and it's in that moment and it it seems like a light and funny moment, but it was actually a pretty significant one for me where I realized they're listening, they're watching, they're modeling, they're growing, and they are building their lives in large part around the lives that they see in us, that we are their primary disciplers. Howard Hendricks, a professor, a a former now deceased professor at the seminary I went to, uh, once said that 1% of our kids' time is spent in church, 16% of their time is spent in school, and about 83% of their time is spent in home. Of course, those numbers change the older they get. Now that our oldest is driving, it's like completely flipped, right? Uh, But the point is this, is that parents are the most influential in the lives of their kids. Every one of us, if we had time this morning, could go around and we could talk about how now in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, we still have residual effects of what it was like to grow up in our parents' homes. Some good, some bad. Parents are the most influential uh, people in their kids' lives. They're the ones in the back seat listening and watching and then repeating what they see and hear from you. They're modeling their lives after you. And there's significance to that, and there's a weight to that, and there's a scariness to that, but there's also a beauty to that, that we've been given the opportunity to, to, to help cultivate really beautiful things into the life of another soul, into another individual, and to send them out into this world to create beauty and to build beautiful things and to do incredible things for the kingdom of God. Scary, but exciting and beautiful. You know, the biblical narrative is clear that parents are primary disciplers of their kids. Contrary to other environments in which they, we need to outsource their development to experts, right? So we have a couple of girls in traveling club volleyball uh, teams, and I'm just the volleyball. You just tell me where we need to be and how to get there, and I'll be there, and I'll sit there, and I'll pretend like I know what's going on, but I literally have no idea, right? She starts, they start talking to me about positions and rotations and this and that, and, and I'm, I'm just glossing over. And then they eventually look at me and say, you have no idea what I'm talking about, do it. No, I literally don't, right? But I'm with you, right? I'm, 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 I'm listening to you. I love you. I have no idea what you're talking about. We outsource that to the expert, okay? Uh, in, in education, right? Uh, our 12-year-old, she's going through math right now that uh, she says, Daddy, can you help? I'm like, sure. Uh, Alexa, can you help, right? And then Alexa helps us, right? I don't even, I don't know, right? So we outsource some of this to the experts uh, because that's how they're gonna develop. And this is an area as we disciple our kids and we impart the gospel to them and we model Jesus for them where there's no outsourcing uh, available, right? It's on us. The church is there to support. There's other supplemental opportunities out there to support, but they can only support to the extent that we're building. They can't replace. They can't, they can't in lieu of our lack of, can they come in and, and, and make do? No, they can only support to the extent that we're building. We are the primary disciplers. We don't outsource it. Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, verse six says it this way. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command to you shall be on your heart. Let me stop right there for a second. Most of the time we use this passage because we like the second part of it. 
where it talks about teach them and, and disciple them and grow them. And we gloss over the first part. Who's the first part about? Us, parents. So there's some pretty big assumptions being made in a passage like this. And we'll get to that assumption in a moment. It says, so you love the Lord your God with everything that you've got and everything that you are. And then you teach them diligently, diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Notice that these, this is the rhythm of life more than a sec- separate program. This is just in the normal rhythms of life. When you're driving in the car, when you're at the restaurant, when you're sitting around the kitchen table, when you're at home, uh, when it's been a hard day and they're watching how you respond to a hard day, when you get bad news and they're watching how you respond to bad news, teach them the gospel in those moments. This isn't some program where we sit down, although there are some supplemental programs that can be helpful to sit down and go through a book or to go through a study or to do that. But by and large, the the biblical expectation is that as you are living, you are modeling and you are discipling. We don't go to discipleship so that we can take tools back to our real life. Discipleship is our real life all the time, at every moment, in every circumstance. God's plans for children's spiritual formation continues in the new covenant in the church. In Ephesians chapter four, chapter six, verse four, it says, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't exasperate them, okay? But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, Deuteronomy chapter six and Ephesians chapter six, and frankly, the whole, all of the Bible makes a pretty big assumption as it relates to our discipling of our kids. And the big assumption is this, is that we are actually disciples, that we are actually growing, increasingly growing in our following of and our knowing and our leaning into and our love for and our adoration for and our appreciation of the person of Jesus in our own lives. Because frankly, we can't give what we don't have. And if we're not walking and growing and resting in the truths of the gospel ourselves, how can we uh, legitimately expect to bring our kids up in the truth of the gospel? So what does this mean for us? I think when we talk about discipling and parenting our kids and cultivating a home that centers around the gospel for the good of our kids, I think we've got to say, yeah, that's incredibly important. And we're going to set that here for a moment because first we've got to do some business on ourselves. And we've got to ask ourselves some questions. In what way am I actually doing that for myself? And in what way am I modeling that? Because here's what's true. And I'll never forget when I was pastoring our church and uh, and really sensing a season where maybe the Lord was leading me out. And hey, the best days of our church are ahead if I get out of its way. Like, and I'm completely okay with that. And sensing that unrest. And I went to our elders one one time and uh, I said, hey guys, uh, this is going to sound strange, but I think I'm done. And they're like, whoa, back the train up, right? What, you know, and they were very gracious and we talked about it. You know, the part of the conclusion was they said, you know what? Uh, We've sensed this in you, Jason, because we know this, we're close with you. We've sensed this unrest and this uneasiness. And, and I think our church has as well. I thought, what do you, what do you, I said, what do you mean by that? Our church has sensed, they said, you know what? For as good as we might think we are at hiding certain things, uh, the people around us are probably far more intuitive and perceptive than we give them credit for. And they've sensed that you're tired. And they've sensed that maybe the Lord is leading you somewhere else. Uh, Even more so than you feel like you've hidden that from them. And that stuck with me, especially as, as our kids have gotten older. And I give them a little bit more credit for being more intuitive and perceptive than maybe I think they are. I think that our kids can sense from us when we're fake and phony. Right? I mean, can we just be honest this morning? 
Our kids can sense from us when we're asking them and inviting them to do things that we ourselves aren't even doing. And the older they get, the more intuitive and perceptive they become. And so this isn't condemnation. This isn't uh, putting the hammer down. This is opportunity. This is encouragement for us to look at ourselves and say, you know what, you're, it's, you're right. I, I've, got, I've, I've gotten off and I want to start to set some rhythms in my own life as dad, as mom, as husband, as wife, as grandma, as grandpa, as caregiver, whatever it might be. I, I need to get back to that place for me, for me. And then I, I want to be so filled with that that it trickles into the lives of our kids. So we're going to spend time not just talking about how we as parents assume the role of primary disciplers, but also has, how, how we as parents are increasingly and intentionally growing in Jesus ourselves. Why? Because I believe one of the best gifts that we can give our kids is a healthy marriage. I believe that one of the best gifts that we can give our kids is a healthy mom and a healthy dad, a healthy marriage, a healthy home that is always leaning forward towards Jesus. And leaning forward towards Jesus will mean that sometimes that means we're stumbling forward towards Jesus or we're struggling forward towards Jesus. But that's discipleship, that our kids see what it looks like to struggle towards Jesus to experience hard things and to lean into the hope of the gospel, to experience confusing things and to lean into the person of Jesus, that we're modeling that for them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to enter into kind of some, a unique discussion here, and I want to frame it this way. Most of us have phones. Uh, all of us have phones. Most of us have the same kind of phone, the iPhone, and then the rest of us uh, have, you're the green texter people, right? And we, you, we all know who you are. You ruin group chats, right? And I text you, and it's green. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's a green texter guy. Like, I feel bad for him, right? The iPhone people, we're a little, uh, we're a little full of ourselves. But anyway, all of our phones have these operating systems on them that we never think about on a daily basis. We don't think about them on a daily basis. Every once in a while, Steve Jobs from the grave sends us a message and says, tonight, as you sleep, your operating system will be updated. And, and the conspiracy theorists uh, in the room say, oh, now what information are they going to steal from me? Are they spying even more, right? The rest of us go, I don't even know what that means. Okay, whatever, right? We don't really think a whole lot about the operating system. What we do interact with on a daily basis are the unique apps, short for applications. And each of us in the room have some similar ones, but we also have some unique ones. Some of you might have one in the room that says, uh, you know, it's an app that I like to use because it, I don't even have to read anymore. It reads to me. Like, wow, really? Or it helps me budget, or it helps me track my calories, or uh, it's a great map that helps me get where I need to go, right? We all have these unique applications that fit our lifestyle and help us do whatever it is that we need to do better. Here's what we're going to talk about this morning operating system level stuff, kind of groundwork framework level stuff upon which the expectation is on you and on me to identify what are the unique applications for me in my home, in my current season, in my current context. So we're not going to answer all the questions here this morning. As a matter of fact, my goal is not to answer every question about how do we disciple our kids well. I don't think there is an answer to all those questions. I live in a big college town, and uh, not long ago, I had coffee with a guy that just got engaged, and uh, he was excited, and his big burning question for me when we got together was this, Jason, tell me how to spiritually lead my wife. Uh, and I said, um, I have no idea, <laughs> right? And I said, but here, listen, there's principles of, of what that can looks like, of what that looks like, uh, but um, I don't know your wife and I'm not gonna be married to her. I know my wife, 
And I know the uniqueness about her and what works for her and what doesn't work for her. I had these grandiose ideas in college of we're going to get married and and the way I'm going to spiritually lead her is every morning at like 4 a.m. we're going to get up and pray together for an hour, right? Uh, We've literally never done that because like Jesus would be like, dude, I don't even want to hang out with you at 4 a.m. You're kind of a rude jerk at 4 a.m. Go back to sleep. And then call me when you're happier, right? Like, and the worst thing that I could do for my wife is wake her up at 4 a.m., right? So I don't know. Like, what's the, you got to learn her. And you have to learn what works for the two of you. Unique applications. You got to learn your kids. You got to learn your home. What works for you? What doesn't work for you? Unique applications. So the burden is on you and the burden is on me to identify those. Okay, let's jump in. One of my favorite books called The Power of Showing Up. It's written by Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson, who are Christian therapists and neuroscientists. And, uh, and, and what they say is that this is their big idea is that science indicates that one of the best predictors for how well children will turn out is this, that they have secure attachment to at least one person. One of the best predictors for how kids will turn out is this, that they have secure attachment to at least one person. And they define secure attachment through kind of this grid of four things that our brain needs physiologically for health and for growth. And now you might be thinking, why are we talking about neuroscience and therapist? Well, here's why. Uh, Because what we're finding increasingly is that science only confirms what scripture has already said is true for a long time. And scripture only illuminates what science is just now figuring out. Because God designed us and he wired our bodies and he created our brains. And what, what beautiful, really uh, um, brilliant Christian neuroscientists are finding is this beautiful relationship between science and scripture. And we're going to get to why that's important in a moment. But here's the four things uh, that Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson lay out in their book that they say every person needs every person needs. The first one is this, to feel seen. Someone who's attuned to our internal state, they understand how our inner life works, that that we're valued and noticed on a deep inner level. One of my favorite uh, writers and thinkers on this uh, is a a neuroscientist who's a believer uh, named Kurt Thompson, and he says this beautiful statement, and I love it. He says, every child comes into the world looking for someone who's looking for them. I mean, think back to, the, to the, the hospital room where your babies were born. And within moments, they come into this world, scanning the room to see who's looking at them. Who are my people? Where am I safe? And this never goes away, right? They get a little older and they, they, uh, they, they draw something and they say, hey, look, look at this, daddy, look at this. Or my girls, it was they were doing gymnastics moves or flips or dances or whatever. Daddy, watch, daddy, watch, daddy, watch. Daddy, see me, Okay. Then they're on the sports field and they do something and they glance over on the sidelines. Why? Because they want to see if you're seeing them. They want to know that they're being seen. So put the phones down on the sidelines and keep your eyes fixed on that kid because you never know when they're going to glance up because they need to see you seeing them. It's innate. It's it's born within us. It's how we're wired. The need to be seen. Number two, the need to be soothed. The need to be soothed, to be comforted, cared for, never alone in our distress or struggle. All kinds of research studies done on kids, babies who are born and they're stuck in orphanages or they're in environments where no one ever holds them. No one ever connects with them. There's never any skin-to-skin contact and the trauma that that produces in their brain development is significant. 
because all of us are hardwired for this need to be soothed and connected. The third thing is to feel safe, to be confident in the world in which I occupy. This isn't uh, absence of hard things. This is how am I safe even when things are hard? Am I safe even when things are hard? We see this often in our home in Texas where our nine-year-old struggles with quite a bit and uh, thunderstorms are a big deal for her. And she's looking to me because she needs to know that she's safe with me no matter what's going on outside. And safety is both internal. I need to feel safe in me and I need to feel safe around me. And we'll get to that uh, external part here in a moment. And then the fourth thing is this, to feel secure. Secure is this idea of I can step out and I can try new things and I can be launched out into the world and I can risk and I can try new things and I can stumble and I can fail a little bit, but I'm going to be okay because I have a healthy relational base in which I can return where I am seen and I am soothed and I am safe. And so that allows me to launch out, try new things and, and knowing that I've got an anchor behind me that's supporting me. So they want us to understand these four things. And here's why, because we cannot understand how kids develop and grow in Jesus without understanding how kids develop and grow, period. Do you know the uniqueness of how your kids develop and grow? How do they express their need to be seen? How do they express their need to be soothed? How do they express their need to feel safe? And how do they express their need to feel secure whenever they are out doing risky and hard things away from you? It's going to be different for each of our kids. And so it's important for us that we investigate, that we are intentional about knowing how our kids feel these things, because these are the ways in which they think and grow and develop. And these are the ways in which perhaps we can come alongside with the truth of who Jesus is in the gospel and speak directly into these places in a way that they can really hear and resonate The goal is not just personal ownership of faith and private ownership of faith. The goal is kind of a public application of it. We want our kids to grow deeper in the gospel. And we want our kids to explore with beautiful creativity how they can then live that gospel out with a sense of security, knowing that they are anchored to a place that sees them, soothes them, and helps them to feel safe to go and build and create beauty in the world around them. Ephesians chapter two says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is my favorite verse on parenting and I never hear it in parenting books or in parenting conferences. And here's why it's my favorite verse on parenting because it's all about what it means to be in Christ Jesus and how our being in, our being safe and seen and secure there allows us then to have this healthy platform upon which we can go and create beauty, cultivate beauty in the world, to do the good works that he has prepared for us to do, to help kids cultivate relationships with Jesus so they feel seen and soothed and safe in Christ Jesus and are secure to pursue the good good works of cultivating beauty that he has laid out for them. That's our goal. I want my girls, as best as we can, to know that this is a safe place to go and do hard things. And cultivating beauty in a broken world is a hard thing to do, but it's a worthy thing to do. And this is a safe place from which you can go and do those hard things. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to take these four concepts and just very practically break them down the rest of our time. And again, contextualize and unique applications. What does this look like for us in our current rhythms and in our current season? So let's start with seen. You know, there's no one-size-fits-all parenting style because no one, there's no one-size-fits-all kid. If you were to sit me down and say, Jason, tell me how to spiritually lead my 
my 17-year-old boy, I'd say, I, I don't know. Tell me about him. Like, how much investigation of who he is and how he's wired and, and how he works on the inside have you done? You know, adults spend hours taking personality and strength finders tests. Let's be just as intentional, if not more intentional, about learning the nuances of our kids. I don't mean literally have them take strength finders tests, right? And personality tests. As a matter of fact, most researchers say uh, you really don't want to have, have kids too young taking personality tests because they then live under the label of that at too early of an age. They're unable to process that. But are we intentionally investigating the inner workings of who our kids are? Because I don't know about you, but I've got multiple kids in my home and they all require different parenting styles because they're all different and unique. Our 16-year-old, uh, the older she gets, the more she and I connect because the more we're discovering that we're a lot alike. And one of the ways that we are most alike is that we just prefer to be alone. Like, I never really feel lonely when I'm alone. I feel more lonely when I'm in a room full of people, as a matter of fact. And so does she. And I grew up that way. And I remember having people come to me and say, you know, they would see me alone in a room full of people. Uh, and they would assume that something's wrong or that I feel lonely. And they'd come and say, hey, what's wrong with you? Is everything okay? What's wrong? And, and I would think, well, nothing's wrong with me, but everyone keeps asking me what's wrong with me. And so it makes me think something's wrong with me. <laughs> and so for years, I grew up thinking something's wrong with me. And clearly there's a lot wrong with me, but maybe in this particular place, maybe it's not wrong. Maybe it's just, that's just how I'm wired. You know, and so she and I have been having conversations lately about, hey, hey, sweetie, it, the introvert, extrovert thing, you'll be told that something's wrong with you. You need to smile more. You need to, you know, you need to dance around more at youth group, which she doesn't enjoy youth group because it's just, you know, you need to be more out there and, put, and just have more fun and, and lighten up a little bit. And, and, uh, uh, and you'll be told that introverts don't like people and extroverts do. And it's just not true. Introverts do like people, and so do extroverts. The difference is extroverts wake up uh, with an empty bank, and they need a whole lot of social capital to fill their bank that day. Uh, and introverts wake up with like five coins in their accounts, and they're going to be very selective about who they give those coins to. And when the coins are out, they're out. I'm done. It's not that I don't like you. It's just that the transaction happens from a different direction, right? So we're learning this about our 16-year-old, and we're helping her learn that about herself, so that she knows how to take that and use that in healthy and productive ways. And to understand that when people come to her and say, hey, what's wrong, right? I don't want you to hear them saying something's wrong with you because there's nothing wrong with you, okay? Are we investigating our kids to help us know how to connect with them? What elicits emotions for them? What makes them afraid? What excites them? What, what, what terrifies them? What, what brings them joy? Understanding their personality traits. Understanding the behavior that we see before impulsively responding to the behavior. Uh, Dr. Karen Purvis, the late Dr. Karen Purvis says that, uh, I'll paraphrase, she says that behavior in our kids, behavior is our kids using words when they don't have words to explain how they feel. So our impulse is to reactively respond to the behavior, to manage and control the behavior. But what would it look like if we stepped back for a moment and took a deep breath and said, what words, I know this sounds like millennial parenting, right? But the, the more we know, the better we can do. And what science is showing now and what scripture only affirms is that when we are connected to our kids and we are in tune with them, we can see that their behavior is, a, is an attempt to say something that they don't feel like they have words to put, to put to. And our traditional parenting methods are to react impulsively to it in order to manage and correct. 
And perhaps as we investigate who our kids are more and we understand their nuances of who they are, we can see behavior as an as a, as a, as a outworking of something deeper that they're trying to communicate or that they need, and we can respond to it more appropriately. The Bible teaches, it says, teach a child in the way they should go. And uh, uh, Chuck Swindoll, uh, uh, a very well-known old pastor and writer, uh, I love how he says, the Bible says, teach a child in the way they should go, not teach a child in the way you think they should go. Like live vicariously through them on the football field kind of thing. Or not teach a child in the way you think the world says they should go. Well, you're supposed to go to college and get a degree and then get an internship and get a job and then do this and this and this and this and this. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Teach a child in the way they should go. Well, how do we know the way they should go? Well, who are they? Do we know them? Have we investigated them? To be seen, soothed, is the second thing. Uh, we, my wife and I do a lot of home repairs and renovations, and so we often interact with uh, home inspectors and city inspectors and permit people, and they come over, and, and we have noticed there are two categories of city inspectors. One is the guy comes in and he believes it's his job to point out everything that is wrong and make it as difficult as possible, okay? There's another one who comes in and, and this is the kind of city inspector that comes in and he's able to see what's wrong but offer solutions. Hey, this is off, but here's how you fix it. It's super simple. Hey, hey, this needs to be adjusted a little bit, but no problem. The other one comes in and says, that's wrong, fix it, good luck, Right? What kind of home inspector are we for our kiddos? Our tendency is to see kids and really people in general as a problem to be fixed and a problem to be solved, not a person to be connected with. And so I wonder, in order for them to feel soothed, uh, if in the moment of kind of their greatest need, what they need most in that moment is not solutions and correction, but simply connection. It doesn't mean that correction, uh, it, it doesn't mean that, that instruction and correction and direction don't eventually come, but let's, let's, let's explore the idea that perhaps there's something to ensuring that they know that we are connected to each other before we work on the correction stuff. Okay? And I know, again, it sounds like millennial parenting, but again, research is showing that when we lead with connection, the correction will nat more naturally and inevitably form because there's that trusted, safe, and secure place from which it's happening. That we don't see our kids as a problem to be solved, but beauty to be formed. That God has created them in him to do good works. And so how can we facilitate movement towards that beauty being formed in them? Safe, how do your kids feel externally safe? Uh, my wife and I aren't fancy eaters. We're, very, we're actually quite boring people. We do the same things the same ways all the time. We eat at the same restaurants. We say, hey, let's go out. Let's try a new place. And then we end up at the same place. And then we say, well, let's at least try to order something different. And then we order the same things. Uh, and then, hey, maybe we should sit in a different booth. And then we sit in the same booths, right? That's just how we roll. And there's consistency to that. If we travel, we look for the chain restaurants. Like we could be in the most exotic place in the world. And like, hey, is there a Chili's here, right? Like, really? You went to Belize and ate at Chili's? Yes. Why? Because we know what to expect. Here's what it means for our homes to be safe. Do our kids know what to expect? And here's, be a chain restaurant kind of home. And here's the difference. No matter what's going on outside, I know what to expect inside. You following me? So this is rhythms. This is expectations. This is temperaments of mom and dad. 
Some of you have grown up in homes or are growing up in homes where you don't know what to expect from dad when you walk in that night. Let's be the kind of dads that they know what to expect. There's a steadiness. Some of you grew up in homes where you didn't know what kind of dad was going to come home from work that night or come home, come home from being out with his buddies that night. Let's be the chain restaurant kind of homes where no matter what's going on outside, kids, you know what to expect here. It's going to be a safe place for you. Religion says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. And the gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. My daughter got in a little fight with her car in a mailbox the other day. Uh, and the mailbox won. And she called me immediately. And she laid it out. And it was one of those moments where I, I could have very easily jumped to, um, are you kidding me? What's wrong with you? How's the car? And I had to take a moment and say, hey, sweetie, uh, it's just a car. It can be fixed. Money comes and goes. No big deal. Uh, are you okay? Right? Like connection. And then we'll deal with the other stuff later. And that was hard for me. You know, bruises on the surface uh, uh, appear to be small, uh, but if you were to take a microscope and look at the tissue underneath, deep down, it just looks completely mangled and destroyed, like it's dead. But here's the cool thing about how bruises work, is that uh, uh, what we see on the skin isn't as bad uh, as what's going on underneath because there's so much healthy tissue around it offsetting the trauma. We, as parents, are in the healthy tissue building business that our kids feel safe, even in hard things, that they're going to be bruised along the way. But we have built enough healthy tissue around them that it offsets some of the trauma. This is a safe place for you. How do your kids feel internally safe? When they're rooted deeply in the gospel. Very quickly, we'll wrap up. Um, Because I know we all need to get to lunch, to Chili's or Applebee's, wherever you're going. How do our kids feel safe uh, externally? They know what to expect. How do our kids feel safe internally? Uh, they're able to confront the narrative of the world with the truth of the gospel in, in a root identity kind of way. Here's what I mean. For, for women, generally speaking, for our girls, and I got a lot of them, and we deal with this, uh, the, narrative of the, uh, the cultural narrative for girls in this world is this. Your value and your worth are rooted in your appearance. And I don't just mean physical appearance, although that's true. I also mean the appearance of your home, the appearance of your marriage, the appearance of your kids, the appearance of your Instagram profile. Like, can you just project an appearance that makes it look like you got it all together? And then the gospel narrative confronts that and says internally, we understand that we want to raise girls that understand that while the cultural narrative says this, the gospel says this, that my value and my worth are not rooted in my appearance, but they are rooted in the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. That's what makes me beautiful. And so my house might be a mess and my kids might just be mangled and my Instagram profile might be non-existent, but I know who I am and that's all that matters. I'm confident in that internally. For guys, it's a little bit different. The cultural narrative for guys says that your value and your identity and your worth are rooted in your performance, that you achieve, that you, that you climb the ladder, that, that you, you assume positions of power and that you, you look at the domain that you've built with your nice home and your nice cars and your nice retirement and all this stuff. You go, look what I've done. And the gospel narrative confronts that, especially in men and our boys. And, and it says that your value and your identity and your, 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 your worth are not rooted in your performance. They're rooted in the performance of Jesus on your behalf. And so you might not have the best job, might not make the most money, might not have the nicest house, but you're still okay because you know who you are. 
and you know what Jesus has done for you. This is how we help our kids feel internally safe and insecure. I'll end with this. That our homes would be a safe place for our kids to learn to do hard things. To launch them out. To go cultivate beauty in a broken world. To go and do hard things. Conventional parenting says it's dangerous for kids to be exposed to difficult things. So we should isolate and insulate and avoid difficult things at all costs. I'm convinced biblical parenting says it's dangerous for kids to never be exposed to difficult things. They need to know what it feels like to be bruised. It just helps to create that healthy tissue around them all the more. They need to know that the world in which we live is broken so that they'll appreciate the beauty that they've been called to cultivate that much better. Here's how it's worked for us and our family. When we became foster parents, um, I used to be afraid of the effects that it was going to have on my kids. And now after the fact, I'm more afraid of the effects that of not doing it would have had on our kids because we were on the fast track to building a pretty comfortable life. And then on April 25th, 2012, a little girl came to our door and she completely ruined all of it in the best of ways because it's impossible to pursue comfort and convenience and simultaneously hold absolute tragic brokenness. The brokenness destroys the convenience and it opens you up to an entirely new world that's more diverse and nuanced and broken and in need of the gospel than, than you, would have, you could have ever seen had you continued down that track of comfort and convenience. And so here's what foster care has done for our girls in particular. It has given them a gift that us as mom and dad would have never been able to give them on our own. It's given them the gift of perspective. It's given them the gift of an increased capacity for empathy because they now see that people really struggle and that not everything is pretty and that not every home functions like our home. They've seen some really hard things. We've had cops at our house. We've had runaway teen. I mean, just you name it. It has increased their capacity for empathy and it has increased their capacity, to their capacity to live in a world with an entirely new perspective. A perspective which says this is a very, very, very broken place in which God has invited me to participate in cultivating beauty. And so I can launch out with a sense of security to do that because I know I am tethered to a place where I am seen and where I am soothed and where I am safe. And this is our goal as parents. Let me pray for us to that end. So Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us wisdom on how to do that well, what that looks like for each of the kiddos in our home. That we would intentionally pursue learning and investigating how our kids are wired and how you've created them so that we can serve them best. Father, help us be moms and dads and husbands and wives and men and women that increasingly find our hope and our identity in you and in the work that you've done for us. And then may that translate into how we love and connect with our kiddos. And we pray that you would do that by your spirit. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.